Thank you guys, it was wonderful. Wow. We've already had two sermons preached. One was by Dorothy, and one was by the children. And a third is by our own hearts, just being drawn to heaven. So I'm just going to add some icing to the cake that's already been made for you. And let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your love. Thank you that when the world doesn't see much, that there is hidden manna, there is resources for each one of us to get us through tough times, to help us realize that we don't have to compromise, that we don't have to be unfaithful. We can stand firm in Jesus. Guide us now through the Holy Spirit to see these truths, to it, especially as we look at the church at Pergamum, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chef Mark Anthony shared with you a picture of Jesus and how Christ had taken him out of an upside-down world. That was last week. And this week we're going to continue and see that sometimes when a church or as individuals we do not overcome compromise and false teaching, we become unfaithful. And it's unfortunate that can happen. But as I was looking at the city of Pergamum, uh, it, Pergamum is an interesting word. It comes from pergos in the Greek, which literally means a fortified structure that is of considerable height. And the goal of that structure is to repel a hostile attack or to enable a watchman to see in every direction to prevent an attack. And as you look at the picture on the screen, you'll notice that here's some of the ruins of Pergamon. And over here is a body of water, but notice the placement of these ruins. Once again, it's up on a high location, it's defendable, and the goal is to repel the enemy and enable a watchman to give a call to the city to prevent an attack. I'd like to say that the church at Pergamum actually was successful in that. I, I would love to say that, but as I read the message to the church, and as I look at this, the seven churches as historical periods, of church history from the time of the apostles all the way down, it appears that they were a foreboding of times of compromise. In fact, as you look at the seven churches, Pauline cites these eight stages, uh, two of them, the medieval and reformation correspond with Thyatira, but he also is citing a historian when he, when he identifies these seven periods. Historians have looked at church history, they've looked at the seven churches, and they came up with seven periods very similar to his. So we go from the Apostolic, which is Ephesus, to Smyrna, which endures persecution for ten years. Then after a time of great persecution, we know Constantine comes into the picture, and eventually the church has a union of church and state. That is a result of compromise and false teaching. And that's where we're going today. And the main thought I have is, when we do not return to our first love, go back there, if we don't return to the apostolic times in our daily experience with Christ, then I believe it sets us up to be compromising, persecuting agents of Satan, really, that need a beastly power to enforce our weak religion. I'll read it again. When we do not return to our first love, we end up being compromising, persecuting agents who need a beastly power to enforce our weak religion. That is how Revelation progresses. It shows a time in Revelation 13 where the church and state did unite in a dark period. And as a result of that, that religion became so weak that it's like the gospel itself was overshadowed. 
It was put into a, a, a place, it was hidden for a time until we know the Waldensians, eventually Luther, others bring Sola Scriptura back. But this is what Pergamum signifies, a period of union, a union that is unholy and unfaithful to Christ. Look at the text, it says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These things saith he that hath the sharp two-edged sword. I know where thou dwellest, even where Satan's throne is, and thou holdest fast my name, and didst not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwelleth. As I looked at this text at first, you know, of course, the meaning of Pergamum now. It's basically this fortress, but this church is not functioning like that. I know some think of the church, oh, it shouldn't be a fortress mentality. People should be coming in. Really, though, if you read Jesus' words, the church does become militant, and according to Jesus' own words, we storm the gates of hell. We become a place where we gather, we encourage, we reinforce, we go out, and we do have a place somewhat of safety here. It should be a safe place for us. But as I looked at this concept here, not just Pergamon being a fortress, but look who is going to fight for his church. It's the one with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Now we know from chapter 1, right? This is Jesus. He appears to his church. And he appears to this church in this specific way because this church needs to be challenged. In fact, uh, if you look down to Revelation 19, you could go ahead and thumb down there, verse 11 and onward. You find a picture of Jesus coming but what does he have in his mouth? A sharp two-edged sword. He's going to strike the nations. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. That's something that typically is applied to the enemies of Christ. He will strike them. But now he's coming to the church and appearing to this church and saying, basically, if you do not remain faithful to me, you will join that side. And so we get on down here in chapter 2 and verse 16 where he tells the church, I'm going to have to treat you the same if you do not turn back to me. That's kind of a sad thought, isn't it? Church has gone through a time of apostolic fervor to persecution. It's, they've stood fast, and now all of a sudden they're tired, they're weary, who knows what compromise comes in, and eventually false teaching with it, and they're getting to the point where they're almost enemies of Christ. It mentions Satan's throne as well. Imagine a church where Satan's throne is. Now we know from Isaiah and Ezekiel that Satan tries to claim or tries to get some claim to God's throne. He's always had a desire to rule. That's why he, of course, caused the fall of Adam and Eve, because then he would have access to each one of us, basically representing our world, ruling our world the dominion that God gave to them, basically, he gets. He's always had this desire to rule, but imagine him ruling a church. What would that church eventually look like if he continued to rule for an extended period of time? What do you think? Now we know he has come to steal, kill, destroy. Jesus says, I've come that you may have life. So there's going to be a contrast. This church is going to begin to look like those elements, deception, killing, stealing, destroying one another. And that's what we find happens if we follow the seven phases of the churches in church history. The church gets to the point where it's a place where this Bible is chained up here. 
It's written in a language that you cannot understand, and if I if, and the pastor of that church or clergy priest, I would know the language of that, but you would not know. You would have to basically blindly trust me, but if I am corrupt and have been corrupted for many years and I'm willing to steal from you, I mean, I can't think of a pastor or a shepherd really wanting to, to like, do that to his flock, but imagine that grooming has taken place where the very people in the pulpit are no more than agents of Satan. This isn't just talking about Pergamum. This is talking about Earth's history later on, what would happen to the church if Satan ruled it. And you all know history. In fact, we're going to have the Pale Horse series this fall that's going to bring out how the Reformation really is not ended, that the protests should still be going on, even though others say otherwise. This seems to be a mirror of church history. It does have a semblance of truth to Pergamum itself because we know Pergamum had this Acropolis, these beautiful pillars. It had a library there. It had a center of influence that delved into creature worship and God worship, God and goddess worship. And as you read some historians and some commentators, they say this, Pergamum obtained the height of its power and glory between 197 and 159 B.C. This is the uh, ruler who expanded the library to 200,000 volumes, almost rivaling the great one at Alexandria. Now, you know what's in those libraries. It's not this is just the Bible, is it? In fact, uh, these are pagan authors, pagan writings, some physics, some science, some other things as well. We find records of some of that, philosophy. So it's, it's a center of of that, of, of learning, and some learning is good. We can find some things of truth, even in some of those writings, we're told. But he can also construct the altar of Zeus, which stood on a hill 800 feet above the city. So you've got that city itself that's planted at a formidable location to not be conquered. Then you have 800 feet above it, this statue of Zeus, this altar of Zeus, excuse me. You can see it for miles. Imagine you're coming to the city, and the first thing you're going to see from a long distance is this altar to Zeus. Prominent. It's tempting to imagine this altar as the place where Satan's throne is, according to Revelation 2, verse 13, especially since Pergamum was the chief center of worship for four of the greatest pagan gods. These gods were Zeus, Athena, Dionysus, and you can pronounce that one. However, it may be that Revelation is referring to the fact that Pergamum was the center of emperor worship in Asia at that time. I don't care how you stack it. This is a place of influence. This is a place of compromise of all cities. This is worship that belongs only to the creator God himself. And it has found itself not just into the city of that area, but we find it's found itself into the church, that local church there in Asia Minor. So that's why I say that this concept that applies to Pergamum back then can apply to a period of our history when we saw it on a wider scale. Notice Jesus says this in verse 13. I know where you live or dwellest, even where Satan's throne is, and thou holdest fast my name. So there are some there that are holding fast and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwelleth. So Satan's throne is where he wishes to usurp and rule in this world. He'll use political powers. We, we find that he used pagan powers, if you will, pagan deities back then. He even does the same today, doesn't he? He doesn't care how he rules, as long as he rules. 
Antipas, we find, was a Christian witness or martyr. It says there in the Greek, this martyr. And he was one who would bear witness of Jesus in that place. So there were faithful people even in those times. He is faithful even where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, verse 14, because thou hast there some that hold to the teachings of Balaam. So you have this contrast, the faithful one Antipas and the ones who are holding fast to Jesus' name, and then yet in this very place, those who hold to the teaching of Balaam. You're all familiar with the story of the donkey, right? And we were pretty familiar with that. He argues with this, this donkey, and, and basically the donkey saves his life from an angel that's going to be destroying him. He's, he's intent upon gaining of wealth. He's intent upon basically prestige. You find he's willing to even ignore the very words of God, clear, explicit words of God, for the sake of his worldly gain. He shouldn't have even been making that trip. It's a whole other sermon. But this is what it's talking about, the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit fornication. Balaam, we find record of, does get killed later on in Israelite history. In fact, it's in a battle situation. But before that, he has done some damage. You remember the, the king, you find Balak himself, who, who wanted to have the people cursed? So he can't curse the people of God. He gets them this other way, this false teaching way. And you say, well, what's so bad about uh, you know, sacrificing idols? Come on, guys. We all know what's bad about that. You know, you find that it's an allegiance to a creature rather than the creator at, at, at the very simplest level. But it gets even darker than that. Once you thingify other people and they're no longer creatures of the Most High, there's a huge amount of abuse that takes place. We find record of the Midianites and others that, that would literally <clears throat> torture people to death. And I'm not going to get into the details. But imagine a religion that gets so dark where the person sitting next to you right now or somewhere near you, in front of you, or behind you is of little value to you eventually. That's what some of the religions have been developed into. Their own children would have to walk amongst the, amongst the, over the fire. Some of them would be burned alive and in not a quick way either. And so you have a false religion, Balaam, who was... More than likely, we find a prophecy of Balaam that points to Jesus. So at some point, God was trying to use him. He merges with this, this state power, if you will, this king, and they begin to institute religion that goes a counter to God, even fornication. Now, we know what physically happened in Israel. They intermarried. We find that takes place. And if that's not a big thing to you, you know, 21st century, oh, people can live together, people can do this, let's, let's, let's just quit it. God has an ideal. As much as our society likes to paint a picture of another reality, let's face it, God has always had that ideal. That's why we as the church are still called his bride. As unfaithful as Israel was, as unfaithful as we find them crucifying Jesus, some of the leaders, we find he still looks upon his people as his bride. That language has permeated scripture from the beginning all the way down. And our human relationships were supposed to mirror that. And so our society has caused this upside-down world, as Chef Mark Anthony said last week, where, where it doesn't really seem to matter to people anymore. So you can say, well, he, they, married in, they married these pagan women, but what did those women do? They taught the children. So maybe it wasn't initially that person who married the pagan that was going to be getting to a lot of that, but their children definitely would, and their children's children, and all it would create a total darkness where God intended there to be light. 
So it was a slow thing at first, possibly, but in one lifetime, you can imagine the damage that this type of system did. And he says, I have, you have those that hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, which I'm not going to talk about now, but this, this whole concept of the influence of the pagan. It happened to Israel physically. It can happen to us physically as well, but it can also happen spiritually. Because in Acts chapter 20, it says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. This was prefigured long before Revelation. Uh, John wrote that part in Revelation. About 30 or 40 years before that. This is being written down. They knew that a diaspora, if you will, of their own people was coming, that a scattering would take place, and it would be because people from amongst them would begin to paint a picture totally contrary to the teachings of Jesus. They would draw away their own disciples, so they keep some types of the vestiges of Christianity, but they would draw them after themselves. And we know that's exactly what happened historically, and frankly, we are, on the ver we are already repeating this history, and we're on the verge of a darker episode that's coming upon the United States and the world. The teachings of men would be substituted for the teachings of God. If we get to the point where it wasn't saved by grace through faith in Jesus, this, this amazing, wonderful message that changes your life and causes you to do the very works of Jesus, it was basically pay your way to heaven, work your way to heaven, and eventually it got so corrupt, so corrupt that people... The system was so abusive that people who disagreed with the system were tortured and killed to death. They were tortured and killed. And this is not the first time this happened. It happened in the Gospels with the very teachers in Jesus' day where they would say, well, you don't have to honor your mother and father. Just take, just take what was devoted to them and devote it to the temple. Right? Well, the same type of thing starts happening in church history. The temple, the building, all of that becomes the focus rather than the people that are supposed to be connected to Christ. Now, we're going to use this building as long as we can. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. You know, and, and that church budget offering doesn't go to just the lights, okay? The lights are pretty much taken care of because you're, roofing, you're solar, okay? But a lot of that money is going to, to fund different ministries. You know, about 50% of your budget is going to fund ministries. So we should use the building while we can. We should take care of it, yeah, the best we can. But we should also make sure that we're, that's not our focus because this is what happened back then. It became their focus. This is only a gathering place for us. Hopefully a peace, place of peace where we can encourage each other, be encouraged, and leave this place doing God's work. But they began to focus on the buildings, upon the teachings of men, and the word of God got set aside. But you're going to notice at the end of this message to Pergamum that it was never really set aside. God always has his word. It's the hidden manna. It's still available, even in the darkest times. And we find... We're told by Eusebius that Constantine, in order to recommend the new religion to the heathen, transferred into it, the new this basically this Christianity, the outward ornaments to which they had been accustomed in their own religion. So let's take, sprinkle, let's take different things that they did, uh, everything from their holidays. And I'm not saying you shouldn't point people to Jesus on this weekend. I, I would use it to point them to the resurrection, right? Not the Easter bunny. That's, that's a step in the right direction. But let's also recognize that a lot of these religious holidays follow a calendar that's not of the Bible. So 
We use them as opportunities. And if I shocked you by that, I'm sorry if you're visiting with us. I'm just telling you the fact that we have a goal that everything that Satan would try to use for evil, we will try to use it for good. That's, we will try to do that. This very weekend should be, at, at the least, commemorating the resurrection of Jesus, but it also should be pointing to other things that the Bible highlights as well. And so we find various things crept into the church, different holidays, different customs, different ways of doing things. Uh, and then eventually salvation, like I mentioned, through Christ was replaced by the requirements of the church. And I wish it would stay that way, but uh, that would be as far as they went. But we know it eventually led to killing, massive slaughter and killing. So what is Jesus' message to not only that age, not only to Pergamum originally, that age, but what about us today? Revelation 2 says, Thou holdest fast my name, and didst not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one. Notice the ownership that Jesus has of this individual. You see the two ownership words, my and my? This is not saying, well, he's my puppet, right? It's saying he's mine. This is my child, my faithful witness. He's pointing him out, almost like Job, who was killed among you. And now, what is the message in that? We, like they at Pergamum originally, like the church age that went very dark in the medieval times, we must remain faithful to Jesus Christ. We must remain faithful to him. And that happens partly by us being witnesses. You know, witnessing, people say, well, is, do I witness people to, for my own salvation? Yes, you do. You know why? It's in the witnessing that somehow God works on you as well. And that's what I mean by that. Not, hey, I better go around and distribute a certain number of pieces of literature and all that and keep it a little record and, and, and God, we're even up, right? No, it's, if there's something about sharing with those around you that it, God in that whole process shares with you, converts you anew. You get a question from somebody who you're talking to with or Bible studies with, and all of a sudden you're like, well, I never thought of that before. You go back and you mine the word of God. You come back to that experience, and as you're sharing it, you know it's not your words. It's just Jesus speaking through you. And when you're done, you're, you're embracing this person. You're in prayer with this person. You're on the knees with this person, and, and they're giving their heart to Jesus, and you're praising God, not because you did anything, but because what he did through you. So in that, I would say... It happens. We remain faithful by being witnesses of Jesus, of Jesus, and then we are witnesses for Jesus. And so both of those are important. We look to Jesus, and then we tell others about Jesus. So I believe if we find ourselves not in any way, in some way or another, not turning to him, not turning back away from the things that have called us away from Jesus and turning back to him, then what ends up happening is we won't be the overcomers. We'll be that compromising, persecuting church that needs the beastly powers to enforce our weak faith. Because can't the gospel stand in its own truth? I mean, you all know, and we're going to have some testimonies coming up here this summer of individuals who God had just took them from this and took them from that. We heard Mark Anthony's testimony. Let's face it. There's nothing more powerful than the truth as it is in Jesus. It doesn't need the state to enforce it. There's nothing more powerful than realizing that the Sabbath is a day of rest in him, that he completed the work of salvation, and each week he restarts our faith. I don't know about you, this is a capstone. This, it's not just the only thing for me in the week. It's, it's a wonderful relationship with him throughout the week, and then I come together and it's like a capstone. 
It doesn't need to be enforced. It needs to be experienced. And so we don't need that type of weakness amongst us. Because if we have that, I believe it becomes dark again. And it seems to be, in this period here, the repentance message has gone to this church, and if they don't repent, notice he says, I will make war against them. He's referring back to the false teachers and all of that, but what happens if we link up with them? Then we join in the ranks, and he ends up making war against us. That would be terrible, wouldn't it? To have somebody who is your friend now all of a sudden say, you know what? I don't even recognize you anymore. Why are you doing that to people? Why are you hurting people? Imagine him trying to stay your hand now instead of trying to have you follow him. He has to intervene somehow strongly in your life. It's kind of a sad thought that that could happen. I came across a quotation. This is manuscript 97, written in 1898. It's very timely. It says, while they stay their mind upon him, and she's commenting about the churches in Revelation 7. While they stay their mind upon him, Jesus, who is their son and their shield, the blackness and darkness that surround them will not leave one spot or stain upon their garments. There's darkness all around us, isn't there? There's fearful things all around us. That individual that they, asked, they caught before he could carry out a church shooting this week, I mean, that's a wake-up call. That's saying, you know what? These people are plotting and planning because they don't have any religious scruples and they have an axe to grind against church religion in general. They're going to go in and shoot up people. And they, and, and they describe the links that they went to. That's dark, isn't it? But that doesn't stain my robe. I'm not going to let that stain my robe. There's a lot of darkness, and the author of darkness himself comes to us with temptations of our own. We all know what those are. And his goal is to stain us and mark us as his then he can gain more access to us. He can claim more ownership of us. But she's saying that if we keep our minds focused on Jesus, that can't happen. Like one old saying, if you look toward the sun, you can't see the shadows, right? They will walk with Christ. They will pray and believe and work to save the souls that are ready to perish. These are trying to break the bands that Satan has fastened upon them. And they will not be put to shame if, by faith, they will make Christ their companion. Imagine we're struggling with different temptations and trials. And Jesus comes along and says, I can handle that for you. I mean, what are you going to do? If you trust them, what are you going to do? Now, here's your shackles, right? You're going to hand them right over. He's going to go and break them open for you, right? I mean, he's going to be our companion through all of these situations. Imagine being like Dorothy and them. You're in this concentration camp. Now, some of us may end up experiencing that yet. Let's face it, Revelation 13 describes a time when there will be imprisonment, massive killing again. And can you imagine being placed in a situation where you're just looking up and longing for the day of freedom? Dorothy, your story almost brought me to tears as you told it. Almost a prophetic whisper that some of us here today will probably be experiencing something similar. We needed that story. Thank you. But if Christ is our companion, he'll provide that chicken, right? <laughs> and those eggs. You can't eat those grubs and everything else, but that chicken can and give you an egg. Temptations and deceptions will be constantly brought upon by the great deceiver to spoil the work of the human agent. He'll come along and try to just mess everything up that, that God has been doing through you. But if he trusts in God, if he is humble and meek and lowly of heart, keeping the way of the Lord, heaven will rejoice. I want to hear that. I want to experience that. And you know what that feels like, right? It's this abiding peace and just joy, this joy 
that you have done something that your father has asked you to do and you've done it well. He says, well done. The joy in that voice, that commendation. For he will gain the victory. God says, he shall walk with me in white. Walk with me in white. With unsullied garments, for he, she is worthy. Wow. So, what should our study be? Well, this fortress, as you know, was a fortress that was supposed to, the structure, the fortified structure of Pergamum and, and the surrounding beautiful structures that they developed, were supposed to repel attackers, enable the watchmen to sound the cry. And that's what Jesus wants the church to do. He wants them to, to point out that there is a hidden manna. And that's where we're going to come to next. A hidden manna where it says in Revelation, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb, and the word of their testimony. And they love not their lives even unto the death. Why? Because they look to what Jesus has done. As we focus on him, he's our companion. He's been through a whole lot worse than I've ever been through. How about you? I mean, have you been shamed publicly before a community of, you know, however many people, religious leaders, they've taken you and spit upon you, they've taken a crown of thorns and placed it on your heads and, and, and whacked the, the, the staff down into it and crunch, crunch it into your head. Have you, have you been through, and we've all been through str struggles and trials and persecutions at times, but, but he has been through immensely more because the devil poured out all the darkness he could pour out upon him, yet he could not stain him in one spot. And so if I'm going through something, I can look back on my mind's eye and say, Lord, I know you've been through this long before me. You've already gone before me. And then I can remember that he is risen. He is risen. He is risen. And he has power right now for me. And not only that, not only is he crucified and risen, but he is soon coming and he's our king. He's going to come out of the sky and send those angels. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Comfort one another with these words. I hope I remember all those. I know if I'm, if I'm in a place of deprivation and hardship, I'm going to at least try to remember Jesus loves me and God, and he answers prayer. Along with, okay, Murray, you said over and over again you're supposed to preach a crucified, risen, and soon coming Savior, so now you better dwell on those three things because you're in some struggles now. So I hope that these things that I'm sharing with you will come back to me as well when the time comes. Because, and in that sense, our relationship with Jesus is hidden manna. This is the answer for this church. Back during the medieval times, the answer was the word of God, though it seemed very hidden at the time. The Waldensians and others did preserve it. We find others who kept the Sabbath in Eastern Orthodox religion and over in Ireland, other places. We find the manna was there. It was still available. The word of God was still available. And it was the case back then at Pergamum. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Notice it's to a singular church, but then it's supposed to be applied to all the churches in Asia Minor, and I believe in our hearing here today. To him that overcometh, to him will I give of the hidden manna. If we overcome, I've never been in the most holy place, but he says he'll give us the manna that's there. I will give him a white stone, and upon the stone a new name, written, which no one knoweth but he that receiveth it. That's going to be amazing, isn't it? Just the receiving of the stone. I was told a story of how, in some cultures, different circumstances in life provide an opportunity for you to receive a new name. You go through a certain trial, and you take a name from that trial. And it helps you remember that you got through that. And imagine getting through everything, and he hands you that stone. I mean, yeah, the crown and all that's going to be wonderful, but the stone symbolizes 
that you've overcome. It's a memorial. And so we know where the man is stored, right? The most holy place, Ark of the Covenant. That's where he is right now. He's offering to give us from that very place. May God forbid that we neglect and totally disregard our message of 1844 and the beautiful teachings we've gained from that time. Because this is the focus all the way down in Revelation. It's, it's the focus all the way through the whole book. It's the focus all the way to the very end that our Savior is in the most holy place and He is providing for us and He's going to solve this whole mess and He's going to come soon and set it all right and He's going to make every eye dry from the tears. He's going to wipe them all away. And so we know that the new name is reminiscent of Jacob who became Israel. His name was changed because he was, a, he was an overcomer. So this church, God's saying, there is a reformation possible. We'll talk more about it in the coming weeks. But the main point, if we remain in faithful union with Christ, we will be overcomers and he will change our names. And I ask myself, Murray, you better start, and if you haven't done that already, start that process. The name change begins now. If you've already started it and that relationship with God is, is feeling strong, feeling good, then keep it going because he'll keep changing you into his child day by day, helping you be the person he'd have you to be. In the coming weeks, we'll be covering, next week, I'm going to be gone the next couple of weeks, but I've arranged for a special showing. Some of you have seen it, but it's going to take you to the lands of Ephesus and Smyrna and show you how that power of love was, was kept alive in those periods, even in the first century. It's by John Pauline and others. And then next week after that, we're going to hit the historical content of Pergamum and Thyatira, and that's also a DVD. So your worship service is going to change a little next couple of weeks, but I'm using this time as information for you to, to kind of personally go there. I've never been to these places of Asia Minor, but these individuals have, and they're drawing lessons from these areas. So next couple of weeks will be specials on that, and then we'll go back to our series, and the elders will help me in May. But I wanted to go back to this idea. Let's let him change our names. That's what he tells them in Pergamum. If there is a temp temptation to compromise or to go with false teaching, then turn to Jesus. He'll take care of all those false, te false teachings. He'll help you stand firm all the way to the end. We have this song that we've played for a number of weeks. As you hear the song, notice God will take you from being afraid to being confident and joyful. He will take you from being wounded, outcast, lowly, feeling like darkness is over you, to faithful. This song is meant to just encapsulate this concept of revelation. I will give you a new name. And we all know that comes when we are part of his bride.
us to be the ones who seek your face, to be like Pergos, a fortified city that stands against all compromise, false teaching, attacks. Help us all to be the kind of watchmen on the wall, if you will, alerting each other to the dangers, but looking forward to the beautiful safety in Jesus. Lord, we trust ourselves into your care. Change our names one day at a time until we see you face to face, and we'll give you all the glory, honor, because all of it belongs to you. All power is yours. In Jesus' name.